welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, and we come now to a portion of chapter 22 that talks about uh, spiritual attack, that talks about great spiritual struggle. We see it in the life of Peter, but by extension, this is something that's that's true in the life of every believer, and so we're going to draw lessons from it today. A conversation between Jesus and Peter that reveals the supernatural backstory that happens in the life of someone committed to obey Jesus. Let us hear the word of God. Jesus looked at Peter and said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, or you, pardon me, until you deny three times that you know me. This is God's holy and revealing word. May it speak to our hearts in both revelation and comfort. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Have you ever gone through a sustained period of suffering, trial, or temptation that was so intense that after a certain point, godly people in your life looked at you and said, you're under a spiritual attack. You ever gone through that? My answer for you is, If I ask the question, have you ever gone through a sustained period of suffering or trial or temptation that's so intense that godly people have said, you're under a spiritual attack, my answer would be, if you're a Christian who has walked any length of time with the Lord, listen, my answer to you would be, I hope so. I hope so because uh, it is going to be the experience of every believer in their maturing life with Jesus more than once. Two reasons for that. One is you have an enemy, a supernatural foe, Satan himself, and he's going to manifest his opposition to what God is doing in your life. But secondly, there's no other way to certain levels of maturity unless you walk through these times. Now, what is or how would you describe a spiritual attack? If you've been through them, you don't need words, but... uh, I'll put it in a sentence just because I like to bring some clarity to what I'm going to begin to attack from the Scripture. 
You could put it this way, a spiritual attack is a sustained period of suffering, trial, or temptation that's so intense, that was so intense rather, that you feared you could not go on obeying Jesus in whatever that battle was over, or even believing in Jesus. Let me repeat it. A spiritual attack can be a sustained period of suffering or trial or temptation in your life that is so intense that you fear you cannot go on obeying Jesus or even at times in certain situations believing in Jesus. Some of you right now who've got some, some mileage, there's some inner spiritual head nodding about that. Some have definitely been through these seasons and have been to some dark places. And yet here you are. You're still with him. You still love him. You're still under his word and you're on the other side. Did you ever wonder why? Did you ever wonder how you made it through those times? Well, today we're going to talk about one of those episodes that's it's, it's described here in the life of one of the great spiritual leaders in the New Testament, the, the future apostle Peter. And some of this is unique to him, but I believe, and Bible teachers over the generations have agreed that much of what he went through can be extended into the life of every believer. What Peter, Peter often went through was a learning lesson for all of us. So we're going to draw understandings. In fact, we're going to draw three key understandings from his experience as we open this text about spiritual attack, about what it is like to go through it and how Christ takes us through it. And we're going to talk about the hidden reason as to why you're here, why you survive, why it all comes out in the will of God. So let's take a look at the passage together. And I've, as I've Ask the Lord for both revelation to understand this, faithfulness to teach it on my part, but also comfort for you. Perhaps you're in the midst of one of those seasons right now, or you know someone who is in that kind of spiritual attack and difficulty and struggle. Oh, there's so much here for us that I hope is comforting. So there's three understandings. That's how I'm going to build the message as I have opened the text myself. I saw three things. And under these, I'm going to develop some other ideas. So uh, if you're note-taking today, you'll be scribbling quite a bit, but stay with me and, and uh, we'll see how this opens up for us. Understanding one that this text teaches us about spiritual warfare is that Satan desires to destroy the faith of every believer through satanic attacks, through spiritual attacks, if you will. And sometimes God allows him to try. Satan desires to destroy the faith of every believer through specific targeted attacks. Notice I said he desires, and we're going to see, and I think the implication of the text and the rest of the New Testament is that Satan desires to do that a lot. And he comes and appeals to God for permission Many times God says no, but sometimes, as in Peter's case, God says yes. God's over it all. So let's take a look at this first understanding. Remember the flow of chapter 22? It is a chapter that begins with the plot to, uh, to take Jesus out, to take his life, hatched by the, the, uh, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Sadducees in the first part of the chapter. Judas signs on as their unwitting partner in this satanic plot. 
Jesus is in masterful control of it all and moves into that a night of betrayal by taking his men to the upper room and they celebrate both the last supper in the sense of the last Passover that they would celebrate before the cross. And then Jesus introduces himself to the first um, taking of the bread and the cup. And we see the master of that night talking about the great work of his cross and what would it what it would accomplish for his people. After they've gone through the the, the time of the Passover and then the, the bread and the cup, Jesus drops a bomb in the midst of the room. We studied that last week where he talks about the fact that the hand of his betrayer is on the table. And Jesus, for a number of times that night, but in this, in this particular way, at the, in, the, in the greatest detail, reveals that he's about to be betrayed by one of the twelve. And then Judas's betrayal is revealed. The disciples react with momentary concern. It soon disappears into a sudden argument about who would be the greatest in the coming kingdom. That's how dull they were and self-absorbed they were. Jesus speaks into that, rebukes it, but then again says, as flawed as they were, they were still his disciples and he would keep them all the way until the kingdom comes. So a bomb gets dropped in the middle of a somber evening. Now we come to chapter 22 and verse 31, and another bomb was dropped. Now Luke writes about that evening in a different way than John or Matthew. He doesn't write it in terms of the actual order necessarily of how things went. So we don't know where all of this occurred in the, trans, in the, in, in the process of the night. But we do know that the betrayal was the first bomb, and now if that's, that's not bad enough... The second bomb is dropped, and that is that Jesus says even the best of the disciples who remain faithful to him will abandon him. In fact, he tells them in verse 31 that they are all going to be sifted like wheat, and Satan will specifically target Peter, and his departure and failure will be greater than the rest. In the midst of that room, all the confidence deflates. All the certainty of what's going to happen evaporates, and they are stunned by what Jesus is saying. Jesus begins to talk about the fact that Satan himself has designed an attack that's going to be leveled upon them all. They were clueless, but Jesus, being Almighty God, had an insight into what was transpiring before the throne of the Father, even in that hour. And he begins to reveal and hold back the curtain and show them what was coming. I see a number of things under this, five things to just explain, verse 31 in particular. There's a principles that I draw out of it to, to build out this understanding that Satan desires to destroy the faith of every believer through attacks, and sometimes God allows him to try. We extend this now from their experience to all believers. Here's what I've learned, number one, under this. All believers have a supernatural adversary. The enemy is introduced here with the title Satan. don't know if you're aware of this. He had many titles. Satan was the one that Jesus used the least. Usually he called him the devil or the enemy. Satanas in Greek meant adversary. It meant somebody directly opposed to you. So now we have this dimension of, of the devil that's, 
that's front and center, and that is he is an opponent and an adversary against all that would follow Jesus. So Jesus now says, there is one who has come and stood against you this night. He's been to the throne room. He stood and demanded permission to bring an onslaught of attack into your world. He is Satanas, Satan. So all believers have a supernatural adversary. And my friend, particularly young believer, the sooner you come to understand that, the better off you'll be. Don't live in the naive spirituality of our new new age that tells us that the wicked dimension of the supernatural world is not a reality. No, you have a supernatural adversary. All believers do. Secondly, it appears here that Satan can appear before God and demand to have authority over us. To have authority over us again. What's that all about? And this is built not only out of this passage, but out out of the weight of the Bible itself. Jesus says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you. He's talking about something that's already occurred in the passage of time. In, 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 in the realm of the supernatural, Jesus being almighty God, as well as a perfect man, fully aware of what had transpired before the presence of God. It appears that Satan had come into the presence of God and it specifically targeted these 11 men. He'd already taken one. He'd taken Judas earlier that night. Deceived him then possessed him, dominated him to do his will. He, he had taken one, now he wants to take the rest. And in some dimension, he had appeared before God and, and he had demanded to have them. There had been a, a conversation. The word demanded is revealing. Exciteo, it came from the standard word to ask, but it had an intensifier on the front of it that mean to ask for and to take from, to, to ask about something that you believed you had a right to possess. One Greek uh, authority I looked at this week said, Exciteo is used only here in the New Testament, and it means to ask for something with emphasis, with intensity, and with the implication of having a right to do so. It meant to claim back, to require something to be given back, to deliver it up to you. And it's in the middle voice here, which means to claim back for yourself. What's that all about? Well, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that before you came to Jesus, you were a child of darkness, weren't you? You were under the supernatural control of the, one, of, of, of the spiritual authority of darkness, Satan himself. You were a child of wrath. The Bible says in Colossians 1 that when you came to Jesus Christ, you were transferred from the domain or the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Do you think that Satan did not uh, have an awareness of that? That's why your conversion is a a supernatural event, not only in your experience, but in in how how you're standing before God changed. And and the devil has looked at this and, and desires to undo it. So he comes into the presence of God and demands that, that he might have authority and control back over the lives of these 11. You say, now how in the world can the devil make demands on God? I, I thought that when the devil fell, wherever, wherever that is in the eons of time past, he was expelled from heaven. Well, that's, that's true in part. But we know from the testimony of the Bible that in some way, the devil, though he is evil and wickedness incarnate, and Isaiah and Ezekiel tell us he was expelled from the very special presence of God, somehow he still has some limited access 
to where he can approach the throne of God in some way and, and have a hearing before God. And we know this partly from the book of Job, where the Bible talks about the fact that the devil came before the Lord and, and made a demand to, to ask God for permission to attack the life of Job. How many remember that? This is a New Testament parallel to that, if you will. And so uh, the devil, it appears, comes before the, the presence of God in a certain way constantly. We know that in 1 John chapter 2, he comes and accuses the brethren. Revelation, I believe, chapter 12 tells us that he is the one who accuses the beloved children of God day and night. He brings our past and present sins before God, and he attacks us on the basis of our sins and failures and demands that God exercise his righteousness to reject us from the kingdom of God. And 1 John 2 says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who stands out in the midst of that and who intercedes for us and who pleads his blood over our sin so that we are not condemnable. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. No accusation against you, even if it's based in the reality of your own sin, will stand in heaven's throne room. You have been forgiven. You're redeemed. You're in Christ. None of that can be undone. But the devil hates you so much and disbelieves God so much that he doesn't believe that. And he wants to undo the work of God. And so he wants to take you back, you see. So he comes. And he brings your sins before the throne and Jesus Christ, your advocate, intercedes for you and shows and pleads his blood and the wounds. And, and he says, this one is blood bought. You have no standing against him or her. But it also appears from the book of Job that Satan can demand the permission to attack God's children. The idea of a hedge around the believer is taken from the first chapter of Job, and, and, and Satan indicates that God has put certain protections around his child Job, and that if he brought down that hedge, Satan would invade and attack Job's very life, so that he, he would attack the blessings of God and reduce the, the, the life of Job to rubble, and Satan believed that Job only followed God because of God's blessing. You remember this story. And so we do see biblical evidence that there is an ability for Satan to do this, to, to come before God, and though he cannot win the battle of accusation eternally, he wants to attack us temporally. And uh, what happened in Job's case? Well, God did allow it. Now, before that frightens you too much, I want to remind you that the, the, the Job experience reveals that uh, the devil had to ask. Think about that. There's a false spirituality in our time uh, and an and equalizing of the power of darkness with the power of God. That's a false theology. The devil is a defeated foe already. Soon we will crush Satan under our feet at the very end of time when Jesus brings that great moment to its close. But even now, the devil has to ask. I like what... Uh, one theologian I read this week, uh, I think it was J.C. Ryle, said, even if the devil comes lunging at you, he's got a chain around his waist. He's chained right to the throne of God. And yet, God does allow it. So all believers have a supernatural adversary. Number one, number two, Satan appears before God and demands the authority 
over us again. He wants to dominate and destroy us. Now, third, I see here that Satan's target is every believer. Now, you look at verse uh, 31, and Jesus is looking at Simon and says, Simon, Simon, Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, this is one of those times when understanding a little bit about how this was written may help you. Our English, basically, the word you there is basically, we'll look at it as singular. But uh, the Greek text, and, and a lot of you are going to have a little note in your Bibles down in the margin, that the word you in verse 31, both occurrences of it are plural in the Greek. That's important. Jesus was looking at Simon, but he was talking about all the 11. And he was saying, the devil's been to the throne room this night. He took Judas, and now he wants to take all of you. In other words, supernatural opposition is targeted against every believer. Most of the time you look at this in the English and you read this through and you think Simon Peter is the only subject of the passage. The Greek tells us they all were under supernatural attack. And indeed, didn't they all flee? Jesus said this night you will all flee because the shepherd will be struck and the flock will scatter. And, and, and to a man, they all said, oh, no, Lord, we won't flee. This is later in the Garden of Gethsemane or on Mount of Olives. Right? So they, they were all going to be targeted. I want you to remember that because some people are blasé about their life and think, I'm just a, a vanilla believer. I don't have much going on in my world. I'm not a spiritual leader. Supernatural opposition wouldn't happen in my life. Think again. You can't name all the, the, the 12 disciples, can you? I can't either, quite off, off, offhand. I can't name them all. Bartholomew, I'll always forget him. But guess what? Even though we forget him, he was important enough for the arch enemy of the universe to target that night. So are you. Number four, I see here that Satan's goal is to shake our faith and to show it to be false. He doesn't believe you love God. He doesn't believe you are committed to God. He doesn't believe the miracle of God's work in your heart is truly real. And he believes that if he can shatter and shake your life hard enough, just like in Job's case, he believes you'll deny your Lord. And so Jesus says he has demanded permission that he might sift you like wheat. This is a metaphor. It's a word picture that Jesus used to describe what the devil wanted to do to all 11 of them. Sifting. Seneazzo, just like the word uh, earlier where we talk about uh, demanding, this is the only time this is used in the New Testament Greek. It meant literally to, to shake grain in a sieve. You, you would take a, a tray that, that had a little, little grade in the bottom, and they would pour the wheat that they had gotten. They'd already uh, cut it, and, and they'd already then separated the heads from the stalks. So that's threshing, I'm told. There's harvesting, and then there's threshing. All of you guys from real wheat country, please don't look at me like that. Anyway, <laughs> this is my Wikipedia mind. Just... But then they would sift it. And so you've got the head of the, the wheat grain in there, and you know it's composed of two parts. There's, there's the, the, the light cover that's called the chaff, and then there's the kernel inside. And it was all thrown into this, this uh, kind of a tray that had a grate on the bottom and wooden sides. They would dump it in there, chaff and, and, and kernel of wheat. And what they would do is they would shake it violently, side to side, front and back, just shake that thing. 
so that the lighter chaff, the cover of the wheat, would be shaken off, and the kernels would just kind of settle at the bottom on the, on, the, on the screen. And they would shake this thing and go after it. And after a certain point, the chaff would bounce to the top, and then they'd take that screen and they'd tilt it a little bit to the front, and then they'd blow the chaff right off the top. And if there was any real wheat left, you'd look and you would see the, the kernels of golden wheat sitting in the bottom of the sieve. Jesus said, the devil has come tonight. And he's come to put you into the sifting of his torment. Because he truly believes that he can shake that so-called faith right out of you. And he's going to do it through severe attack tonight. You're all going to be put in the sifter. And he's going to shake your lives because he really believes that when he shakes you hard enough and then he blows on the top of what he's done, you'll just blow away because there was nothing ever to you at all. That's how the picture, I think, was designed to warn them of the great testing that they were going to face when Jesus went to the cross and the opponents of Jesus came for them all. Their lives would be shaken. He wanted to shake them so that their so-called faith would be shaken right out of them. I don't know if you've ever been through that, but that's kind of the character of satanic attack. Maybe you've been through a period in your life when you got to the edge of holding on to your faith. Now you know where you were. You say, how does Satan do this? How does he sift? How does he, how does he shake my world in my experience, there's three different ways he can do it. The first is through tribulation. And didn't Jesus say we'd have that? Tribulation meant to, to pound something in a, in a small wooden bowl with a, with a, with a small uh, rock bowl with another rock instrument so that you are literally ground down by pressure and suffering. Tribulation, he can bring suffering into your life, can't he? Physical, emotional, relational, family, illness, financial, life in the church, life, life in, in every dimension, social. There are times when you go through deep tribulation and it's just flat out suffering. However it gets delivered, the hedge comes down and the suffering is allowed to be brought. Second, he does it through temptation, which is attack on your mind and your will, to stop believing God and stop obeying God because it's becoming too painful and too costly, maybe through the suffering, which can include persecution. And as the suffering rises, then the temptation comes to stop obeying Jesus and stop trusting God and give in to despair and let depression swallow you and let anger control you and let all those other dimensions that, that come into your mind dominate your life. Tribulation followed by temptation. And then if you begin to stumble and fall and begin to fail in believing God, he brings the third part of the trifecta of his sifting, and that's accusation. 
after he's tempted you and begun to fray your obedience and lead you into back into habits you never thought you'd go back to again because the pain is so great or whatever it might be for you and you begin to stumble. Oh, then he brings in the accusation of how worthless you really are and that God could never really have saved somebody like you and he'll never receive somebody like you back again. And then what he does is he repeats the cycle over and over. Satanic attack, tribulation, temptation, accusation, relentlessly. That's his goal, is to shake your so-called faith to where he reveals that it will fail. Show it's false. The devil hates you so much and disbelieves God so much that he doesn't believe that any true believer is a true believer. The devil denied God and defied God, and he truly believes you've got the same character. And he really believes if he can attack your life hard enough and long enough, he'll shake you so bad that he'll blow you away. However, the Bible tells us that God also has a purpose in letting down the hedge and letting those attacks come, and that's the fifth thing. Satan has a goal to shake your faith and to show it's false, but God's goal is to show your faith to be real and to deepen it. Because you see, I mean, at this point, when, 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 put yourself in Peter's place. If, if the Lord of the universe says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. If you knew anything about Satan, wouldn't you have said to, to the Lord at that point, uh, Lord, you told him no, right? <laughs> Wouldn't you tell him that? Yeah. Any experience with the devil will tell you that if you know he's asked to attack you, you would say, Lord, you told him no, right? But the text says, no, God said yes. God allowed this to happen that night and for those three days and the days afterward because even though the devil wanted to destroy them, God wanted to use it to deepen them. He's in control, isn't he? All right, a lot of time on the first understanding, but I think it's important for you to get the setting of how this, this is all described by Jesus. So Satan does, does, does desire to destroy the faith of every believer through attacks, and sometimes God allows him to. Now let's get into the next part of the text, verse 32, and we get to understanding too, and that is, because Jesus prays for us, our faith will not fail, though our walk may waver. This gets to that hidden reason you may not even realize was behind why you're surviving and why you've gotten through your great hours of satanic battle. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ prayed you through. We are so ignorant of what happens in the throne room on our behalf. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. Look at every word in that sentence. But <laughs> I'm the game changer here. Devil's not in control. I, almighty God, have, I'm ahead of this, prayed, gone to God for you. Oh my goodness. Word you there now transverse to singular in the Greek. 
They were all in peril. Simon Peter, though, was particularly in the crosshairs. And Jesus was on it. Two things under this. I see that spiritual leaders can be special targets of the enemy. Everybody that's ever had a ministry is doing that inner head nod with me right now. Spiritual leaders can be special targets of the enemy. That's, the, that's why this now shifts to Peter. He was a special target of the greatest intensity. Why? Because P- Peter had a special ministry up to that point. He was leading poorly in times, but he was leading. He was speaking weirdly at times, but he was speaking. Understanding Peter got a lot more, a lot quicker than a lot of the other disciples. That's kind of why he walked into the room mouth first. Sometimes he didn't have it right, but he was getting it. Peter was the one on the hillside when all the other disciples were leaving. Jesus looked at the 12 and said, do you want to leave too? And who spoke up? Peter said, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Peter was the, the, uh, the great, he was the most spiritually responsive of all of them, perhaps. And Satan knew this. Peter had a special ministry. That meant he had a special future. Satan's not omniscient. He didn't know that Peter was going to be used by God in the first 11 chapters of the life of the church in the book of Acts to lead the progress of the gospel out to the world. He had no idea, but he had some suspicions and he wanted to take Peter out. If you have a special ministry, that means there is something special about your future. God is going to use you, whether in a big way or a small way, he wants to find you to use you. So if you have a special ministry and a special future, you become a special target. Now, they all ran that night later at the garden when Judas kissed Jesus and the swords came out. They all ran, but Peter stayed near. He ran, but then he came back, didn't he? John went into the courtyard and Peter stayed out in the courtyard and he stayed as close enough as that campfire would allow him to. And that's where he denied Jesus under the fear that surrounded him when that girl in the court recognized him as having been with Jesus. And he denied Jesus, yes, not once, yes, not twice, but three times. And then the cock crowed. But my friend, he, didn't, he, he failed Jesus deeply because he dared for Jesus greatly. He was there. Bartholomew wasn't. Andrew wasn't. James wasn't. If you step into the call of God and you respond to what God wants you to do, your very boldness will put you into the the target sites of the enemy in a way that others just won't risk and they won't understand. You see, it's important to understand that Satan seeks to sift intensely those who really threaten his work. He goes after the tree that has the most potential to bear fruit. He wants to cut it down. That's exactly why the devil desired to sift Peter in an intense way, more than the others. Isn't it true that if you're a spiritual leader at any level with any experience, you'll echo this with me, spiritual attacks... Just expect them. They're a part of your life. Now, maybe you're not a spiritual leader today. Most are not. But maybe like Peter, you're still going through a spiritual attack, or you have, and you're being shaken right now. You're in the sift. 
And you're saying, why me? Why now? Why us? Why my family? Well, I would just say to you, let me remind you that you ought to rejoice that you've got such a reputation in hell. Think about that for a minute. Why me, Lord? Why me being attacked like this? I'm nobody. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a leader. I, I'm just a vanilla believer. Well, there must be something more to you than that. Satan is sifting you because somehow you play an important part in God's plans. I read one author this work week that put it in the negative. He said, if you've not been through the devil's sifter in your Christian life, you're probably not worth sifting. It's not my words. That's why I'm, I'm quoting somebody else. He says, if you've not been through the devil's sifter, you're probably not worth sifting. Perhaps he already knows what you're made of. I would say the enemy's desire is to sift all of God's children, and there's no promise given to us from God that we're going to escape a sifting of the devil similar to what Job experienced or Peter experienced or the early church experienced or the persecuted church now experiences. Where's your exemption clause? I wouldn't want one. So spiritual leaders can be special targets, though, of the enemy. Remember that as you think about those that serve and minister and teach and lead and sacrifice. But here's the second thing under this. Even though spiritual leaders can be special targets of the enemy, Jesus powerfully prays for every believer under spiritual attack, and he prevails. This is the heart of the teaching that I want you to take away. I don't want you to be terrified by the idea of spiritual attacks and warfare. Now let's get to the essence of why this passage is here. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Look at this. Jesus had already prayed this battle through I have prayed for you. Jesus had prayed for Peter's battle sometime that night, sometime in an isolated time of prayer that Jesus often took as he prayed. Well, the Bible says he was always in conversation with his father. He knew about this challenge at the throne room. He knew about Peter's great sifting that was going to come, and he'd already prayed Peter through it. Hallelujah. He is the master of time and all events. He knows about your sifting to come, and he's already prayed you through that. Jesus had prayed for Peter's battle before it happened. And even though the Lord Jesus, I mean, Jesus prayed for Peter in person. He was in the room with him. He was there day to day with him. Now he's in heaven. Is it different for you? No, because he's in heaven now interceding for you, as David read in our text today. He's now in heaven interceding for you. This has to do with what's called the unfinished work of Christ. You know about the finished work of Jesus, his salvation work for you. And then when he walked into heaven's throne room, showed his wounds and, and, and showed the blood, salvation was accomplished. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God to show that it was finished. 
Your salvation is the finished work of Christ, but now Jesus is in heaven and he's involved in a work yet unfinished. What is that? It is his work of praying for you, for the church, for you as an individual believer and interceding for you. Where does the Bible teach this? Many places, Hebrews predominantly, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, Jesus re-entered the heavenly throne room. He's there now. What is he doing there? Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What is he doing? He's there for you. What is he doing as he appears before God? Go back to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is the unfinished work of Jesus for you, believer? It is being before the throne of God in heaven and in praying for you as you walk through this battle zone called earth until you get to heaven. He intercedes for you in two ways. He pleads the blood of his wounds every time the devil brings your sin before the throne, before the presence of God. He pleads his wounds and, and his, his shed blood for you, and it's all taken care of again, and it's all declared before the throne room. But then he prays for you. He intercedes for you. The Holy Spirit does the same thing with groanings too deep for words, the Bible says. They are praying for you, but Jesus has a special unfinished ministry for you. He's praying for you at the throne of God. Now, if you understand this, it can change your life of spiritual battle. Uh, Herbert Lockyer years ago wrote one of many, many books called All the Prayers of the Bible. And when he got to this passage, he talked a little bit about this. He said Jesus had tried to forewarn Peter about his coming test. Peter, however, was not fully aware of the power of Satan. We're going to see that in a moment. But then he says this, but what can Satan do against the prayers of Christ? Dr. Lockyer says. Peter was prayed for by name. Jesus said, I have prayed for you. The Greek is singular. Does Jesus pray for individual believers by name at the throne of God right now? My opinion, absolutely. Dr. Lockyer says Peter was prayed for by name, and this prayer habit of Christ's has never ceased. Is it not comforting to know that each of us are on the prayer list of the Lord Jesus before the throne of God right now? Does he not live to make intercession for us? Every one of us, no matter how insignificant of the eyes in the eyes of the world we may appear. Then he quotes Robert Murray McShane, who was a saintly Scottish pastor and evangelist of a past century, a marvelous man of God, but much attacked. And Robert Murray McShane said this, quote, If I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a thousand devils. I think that's pretty cool. You think about it. Time and space are no barriers to him. He's at the throne of God right now, but he dwells within your heart in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's omniscient, omnipresent God. He's praying for you right now. And if you understood the words he was praying, if you understand that he's already got this, if you understand that he understands your every pain or every struggle, and he's going to pray you through, and he's going to carry you through, like Dr. Machine said, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a thousand devils. 
Well, we don't understand. That's the hidden reason, you see. Dr. Locker goes on, Christ is praying for us just like he prayed for Peter, which should be a comfort when fierce temptations arise. Oh, truly, the next room, the throne room, is not far away. For time and space have nothing to do with the life of the unseen world. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. I don't know about you, but I'm taking that encouragement. I mean, just think about the prayer ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about a number of things. First of all, think about where he is right now as he's praying for you. Where is he? He is in the throne room of the universe. He's back where he had always been. He is back where the angels once again surround him and call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is at the right hand of the throne of God He is in full glory, full power, full authority. And he is coming before the Father saying, Father, I ask that you would work in the name of beloved Mary, beloved James, beloved Lucy, beloved Robert, beloved Joe. And I ask you to work in a mighty way against our foe this day. Who is going to say no to someone like that? And didn't Jesus say the Father always does what I ask him? John eleven forty two. You think about where he is. Think about how he prays. The Bible says he ever liveth to make intercession for me. I take that as basically he never takes his eyes off me because he's almighty God. But because he's almighty God, he never takes his eyes off you. Or you, or you, none of us. You might be nameless in the throng, but he's praying for you by name. He never takes his eyes off. How many times have you been through a hard time and somebody came alongside you in the body and says, well, I'm going to remember and pray for you. And and then you you hardly ever hear from him again. Even though you're still going through it and it's clear, you're just under the burden every, every Sunday when they say, and because we're frail, we fail in our commitments. The Lord Jesus Christ is never going to forget you. He'll pray you all the way through this. constantly, personally. Think about where he is. Think about how he prays. But then look at what he prays. Go back to your text, and I promise I'm going to finish soon, but not till I'm done. <laughs> when you look at this passage, it says, but I have prayed for you that, hinaklaz in the Greek, this is what his, he was praying for. Now you would love to insert, I'm praying for you that this devil is going to put his tail between his legs and run this morning. I'm praying for you that I'm going to solve all this and take away the trial. I'm praying for you that this will end today. No, that's not what he says. He doesn't pray for an immediate answer to your pain or an immediate solution to your financial crisis or immediate solving of that relational attack or whatever it is. What does he pray for you? That your faith may not fail. Now, this is interesting. We want him to pray for our solutions but he knows the devil is after something bigger. Do you think the devil's attacking your financial life because he wants you poor? Do you think the devil's attacking your relational life because he wants you isolated? Do you think the devil is attacking your, uh, your ministry life because he wants to destroy your influence? Do you think the devil's attacking your physical life because he just hates you and he wants you physically miserable? None of that is fully true. 
The devil is using all of that because he has a bigger target. Listen to this. His biggest target in what he's doing in your life is always to destroy your faith. He'll beat on these other things to do it, but his ultimate goal is to destroy your faith. Because he knows if he has destroyed your faith, he's destroyed you. He's destroyed your assurance of salvation. He's destroyed your belief in the love and the mercies of God. He's destroyed your belief to believe that God is fully powerful and capable. He's destroyed your belief that you can grow and change. He's destroyed your belief in whatever God wanted to do in your life and your ministry and that it's over. He's destroyed your belief that the church is a place that you even want to stay in at all. He's destroyed your belief that he is even fully real. If the devil can destroy your faith, he's taken everything. That's why Jesus said, I'm praying for you, Peter. And I'm praying most of all that your faith will not fail. Now, some of you may be saying, but wait a minute. Later that night, didn't Peter fall? Deny Jesus? Deny that he knew him three times? How could Jesus have said, I pray that your faith would not fail? Didn't Peter fall? And my answer would be he fell, but his faith ultimately did not fail. Interesting. Yes, thank you. He got up. And, but, but, but let's take a look at the passage. Fail is an interesting word. Eklepo, it, uh, it meant to cease. It meant to come to an end, to give out, to die out. It's our word that we get our English word eclipse from. What happens when a full eclipse happens? The body of one, one celestial body comes and cuts off the lights so that you can't see the other. If something's eclipsed, you can't see it anymore. It's put into shadow by another thing. He's basically saying, though the devil's going to press you like you can't believe, he's not going to eclipse your faith. Your faith isn't going to disappear. You're going to waver for a while and you're going to falter tonight but your faith will not fail. And isn't that true? Who came back? Peter. Who came back with tears and was recalled to his life with the Lord? Peter. Who came back and strengthened all the other disciples? Peter. You see, there's falling and then there's failing. We know that Peter was going to come back because Jesus says, I've not only prayed for you that your faith may not fail, but when you have turned again, it's already assumed by the Lord Jesus. I already know you're getting through this because I prayed you through it. Your faith is going to take some real hits tonight, but it will not fail. And when you have turned again, that's another interesting word. Epistrepho, it meant to turn around, to return it was often used to describe repentance in the New Testament, and it had to do with taking your mind and turning it back to what you believed. One author said it's retracing your steps. And that's what happened. True believers will not deny him, ultimately. In the midst of deep spiritual opposition and attack, Jesus will have prayed for them. And their faith, though it may falter, will not fail. That's why Jesus powerfully prays for every believer under spiritual attack and prevails. Regardless of what you see, regardless of what you feel, true believer, that can be a promise for you. A mighty promise.
Well, we'll go to the third and close quickly now because there's a couple more verses to cover and they tell us something about our personality. Here's the third understanding and that is that when it comes to spiritual attacks, most believers overestimate their devotion and underestimate the danger, especially when they're young like Peter was. Most believers overestimate their devotion and underestimate the danger. Here's Peter again. In a moment when the whole universe of darkness is ready to come against him, Peter is not getting it. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Overestimating his devotion. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. But you see, when we overestimate our devotion and underestimate the danger, that's another reason why God has to let us be attacked a little. Because then you learn. Here's two things as I close. One under this is that nothing helps us understand our spiritual weakness like spiritual attacks and failures. You say, why would God allow it in my life? Because he knows it's about the only way you're going to understand how at risk you are and how to trust him. Did you know that there were two follow me points in Peter's life as a disciple? Most of the time we think about the first one happened in in uh, Matthew chapter 4, along the Sea of Galilee, he was fixing his nets, and Jesus walked the shore, and he said, follow me. And Peter left the nets, right? He, along with James and John and the others. Well, that was his first follow me moment, and he left in self-confidence. He started following the great teacher, the wonderful prophet, the Messiah, and, and started to get all into himself. And he followed Jesus for three years, mostly in self-confidence and self-sufficiency. And that night, his self-sufficiency ran into the enemy himself, and it collapsed. He fell into the greatest failure of his life, and he was broken for some days until finally, after Jesus rose from the dead, Simon Peter, still believing he could never be used again because of his failure. You remember the story in John 20, went fishing. Remember this? Jesus was risen, and Peter took the other disciples. Even though there was a great commission that had been given, and Peter knew he'd been called to it, Peter didn't believe he was up, up for it. He was not worthy of it anymore, and so he just went back to the only thing he knew he could do, and he went fishing. You remember the story? Without going into a lot of the details, the Lord Jesus shows up on the bank of the river of the Sea of Galilee again. And he has a conversation with Peter. And he says, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? What is he saying? Remember that? I think he was saying, Peter, for three years you said, you loved me more than any of these guys would. Still think you love me more than all these guys? And Peter just hung his head and says, Lord, you know I, you know I have a heart for you. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And Peter finally said, Lord, I, I have a heart for you. Isn't that enough? And Jesus said, you go feed my lambs now. He called him back a second time, not as a confident man, but as a broken man. Not as somebody who thought he was spiritually bulletproof, but as somebody who knew he was spiritually dependent. And now he was ready. How did he get there? spiritual battle. Here's the last. 
Spiritual battles help us understand our spiritual weakness, and God only works through weakness. Didn't Paul tell us that? But what we learn is what we can give to others. And then we go back to the text. He says, when you have turned again, and I know you'll be on that, that seaside in Galilee. I already know our conversation when you've been broken and you turn again and you say, Lord, whatever, please do it all through me. I can't do anything for you. Then you go and strengthen your brothers with that same message. And you know, Peter did. The word strengthen here is an interesting word. It's a word commonly used in New Testament Greek to talk about helping believers become inwardly committed. And guess who used it as a favorite word in the two epistles he wrote 30 years later? The apostle Peter. I close with one part of what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5 that shows us that he ultimately learned it all. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves. He's strengthening you as he says that. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, the faith that was never taken from Peter that night. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and here is that word, strengthen and establish you. Christ prayed it all through. And here we see people living out the answer. Peter, Peter living out the answer. God's in control of all spiritual warfare. And all believers will go through it, but the hidden knowledge is he's already there with you. All Christians who are headed to heaven and want to please the Lord are going to have these kinds of things happen. John Bunyan wrote, maybe the greatest Christian book ever written outside the Bible. Of course, Pilgrim's Progress. If you've read it, it's about an everyday believer named Christian and his perilous journey through this world to the celestial city. Along that way, he has many obstacles, and there's one place called the Valley of Humiliation, where Christian faces an enemy called Apollyon, the destroyer. Christian battles and wins. And he moves farther toward that celestial city. That's you, believer. Have you been through some spiritual attacks like the one we've seen today? Well, congratulations. It's a sign of sonship. I know they've been tough, and yet you're still here. So am I.
Why did we make it? Because we really do belong to Jesus, and Jesus really did pray us through. Are more attacks going to come? Probably. But if they do, then you do all you can do according to Ephesians 6. You do everything and you stand firm. You battle. Don't think that this is some kind of magical thing where you don't have to battle. Oh, you will. But you do all you can do and he will do all he needs to do. And you'll keep heading toward the celestial city. 